0: Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. Amen, amen. Well, as Pastor Brendan already mentioned, we are coming to the end of the season of Ordinary Time. Uh, Next Sunday is Christ the King Sunday, and as has been our practice Uh, We will gather together to affirm and reaffirm our shared rule of life. Uh, If you've been around our community at any time or any any amount of time, no doubt you've heard us refer to our rule of life. And if uh, if that phrasing rule makes you a little bit nervous, it did for me at first years ago. Uh, But it's simply uh, maybe a better way of putting it as a trellis. Uh, That's, in fact, the the same root Latin word where we get rules. It's the same word for which we get trellis, which, of course, you put in a garden in order to give structure and stability, in order to allow a plant uh, that would grow normally to flourish even more. Uh, Simply put, our rule of life is how we articulate the intentional rearranging of our lives to walk together in a beautiful and messy way. And that is the way of Jesus. It contains affirmations. It contains practices that give shape and form to the kind of life that we desire to live together. And our hope is that it provides it in a simple and clear way. And so this Sunday, I want to invite us to begin to turn our attention to the trellis for our life together with and for God. And so we're going to begin this morning in our gospel reading and then end with our epistle. In our gospel reading, I want to invite us to look at in really two movements this morning. The first movement is in these opening verses, verse one and two. Uh, Jesus is going to respond to the disciples' admiration of the temple. Uh, the passage opens with a double question about the temple. And at the time that Jesus is having this conversation with his friends, uh, the temple, which is the temple of Herod, uh, is being built. It's currently in construction, but it is already well on its way to be one of the wonders of the world. It's one of the largest structures for miles around in any distance and is quickly becoming one of the most beautiful buildings in all of Jerusalem. And so it's, it makes sense as to why Jesus, friends would stop and go, Jesus, who they know has an eye for beauty. They've been around him enough to know that he pays attention to what is good and what is true and what is beautiful. And so they go, Jesus, isn't this beautiful? What's interesting is Jesus' response, rather than join them in their adoration, rather than admiring with them the aesthetics and the beauty, Jesus, a little bit of this Debbie Downer moment, solemnly predicts that the whole thing going to be destroyed brick by brick. A few verses later, Jesus sitting with his friends a distance off, they ask him, can you, can you explain a little bit? Like you're just in a bad mood, having a bad day. But they want him to explain a little bit further. And so Jesus does. In ancient Israel, the temple was a signpost for the presence of God. It inherited that task from the tabernacle in the wilderness. It was a space to be with God, for God to be with his people. In fact, if you were an Israelite, you would intentionally rearrange your life, your calendar, your time, in order to make it to the temple in certain feast days. In certain liturgical celebrations, you'd make it there for sacrifice, for offerings, for worship, and for prayer. But over the generations, something had happened. This place that was intended to be a signpost for the presence of God with God's people, something changed. There had been a drift, this slow and steady move away from center. There was this move from orientation into disorientation. There was a shift in love's. The temple, though it was to serve as a signpost for the presence of God, had become an idol. It had become perverted. It had become politicized. In fact, its leaders had shirked the mantle of shepherds and taken up the mantle of enforcing specific doctrines and moral purity and gender roles. It was no longer a space of hospitality, but rather a space where you could taste and see the division even amongst God's people. Rather than serving as a place reserved for God to be with his people and his people to be with God, instead it mirrored the temples of Rome and of Athens, places where you went to appease the gods and take advantage of your neighbor in order to do so. And Jesus just couldn't get past that. He couldn't get past what it had become in order to simply admire its aesthetic beauty and magnificent architecture. And so his response is actually consistent. With his responses in other places, take, for instance, Matthew 23 and his response to the Pharisees, where he says, You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead bones and everything unclean. On the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Jesus just, it's not so much that Jesus can't be fooled is as Jesus's eye is attuned to beauty that we oftentimes can't see. He's attuned to a type of goodness and a type of beauty that moves into the deepest, most hidden places of who we are. Jesus sees through the facade and what is his response to this with his friends? Well, first he invites his friends to have courage to see what he sees. And I think here when it comes to our lives and when it comes to our communities, God would invite us to ask the Holy Spirit to give us sight, to help us to really see reality as God sees it. And I think it's important because God doesn't look at the cosmos through rose colored glasses, but he also doesn't look at the cosmos through gray colored glasses, He doesn't move to everything is good and everything's beautiful and there's nothing broken and there's no bondage. I want that to be true. But he also doesn't go to just complete dejection dejection and doom that this world is completely, utterly lost and we just need to burn it down. Rather, what God sees is a world full of glory and beauty but a world that is also in bondage to the forces of darkness. He sees a world being set free and still needing to be set free, a good creation endowed with dignity. And here is where I think there's an invitation for you and for me to ask the Holy Spirit for the courage and the sturdiness to actually see reality as he sees it in its fullness, full of complexity and mystery of beauty and brutality of both creativity and conflict. And why is this important? Why not live in denial and ignorance? Ignorance is bliss. I can't tell you how many times I hear that joke, but there's a certain truth to it. Like you just, (laughs) you just don't know what you don't know. And so why not? Why not live in ignorance? Why not live tucked away, turn off the news, retreat? Well, first of all, because you can't escape yourself. That was one of the big things with the desert fathers and mothers that when the monks would and the nuns would go to retreat, they weren't retreating from the difficulties of the world because as one desert father put it, you bring it with you. Like you are the problems of the world. There's no desert monastery we can escape to, to escape ourselves, but more so, The reason why it doesn't work to just live in ignorance and out of touch with reality is because reality is precisely where God is. God is not in some fictitious past or future. He is in the present. In all of its beauty, in all of its brutality, God is present. And y'all, where God is, there is the good life. Where God is, there is the good life. And y'all, if we want to live in ignorance, if we want to settle for a garden whose ground is fallow and pretend that it's fertile, if we want rows that are overgrown with weeds and thorns and pretend that they're fruitful, God will not force sight upon us. God will not force or shame us into breaking up the fallow ground or cleaning out the weeds. Does God want those things? Yes. Yes. Does God invite us to cooperate with him in those movements of tilling new parts of the garden, of sowing new life? Yes, but friends, each and every one of us have a locked gate guarding the garden of our souls and God will not force that open. I won't even try to force it open on you because God himself will not force those doors open, which is why scripture is full of both commands and invitations. Listen to God speak through his prophet Hosea. So goodness for yourselves, reap the fruit of unfailing love. Break up your fallowed ground for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness upon you. God stands waiting to bring life where there is death but God will not wrangle. It's one of the things throughout all of the gospel stories, Jesus is constantly trying to get people to take ownership of their agency. He doesn't force. He doesn't wrangle. Which brings us to the second movement this morning, which is an invitation here for us to ask the Holy Spirit, not only to help us see as God sees, but there's an invitation from the spirit to intentionally rearrange our lives to follow Jesus. Jesus in this private conversation with his friends describes the destruction of the temple and everything that's going to come with that as birth pangs. I've said before, I have little ground to stand on except for being present in the room to comment on any birth pangs. But there are multiple meanings to what Jesus is saying. First is that Jesus is referring to the literal destruction of the temple that will come in AD 70. But I think one of the things that we're also meant to see here is that the facades of life are temporary at best. That what eventually that that eventually what is real will make its way out, and so the invitation to intentional rearranging. But it is not a direct a directional list. One, it was not it didn't feel as wordy when I typed that out. It's an invitation to an intentional rearranging, but it is not a rearranging without a vision of what the good life is. You and I, as women and men who desire to walk in the cruciform way of Jesus, have been, given G- have been given Christ a vision of the good life, a vision of what it means to truly and be fully human, what it means to live a life full of creativity and crisis, full of delight and despair, full of life and death. And that vision of Christ reorients us It reorients us and it calls us to open the gate, to let God in with God, to till the hard ground, to weed the overgrown gardens of our soul. But as if to warn us against believing that ease and convenience are values in God's kingdom, because they certainly are in ours. right? We spend a lot of money and a lot of time trying to orient our lives around ease and convenience. And unfortunately, I'm just still looking for where those are values in the kingdom. I'm not saying that tongue-in-cheek. I, I spend a an, 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 ridiculous amount of energy, if I must confess, looking, going, Jesus, how do we make this easier and more convenient? And yet those are not values of in God's kingdom. Jesus uses the image of birth pangs to describe the process of life, to death, to resurrection, of orientation, to disorientation, to reorientation, because walking the way of Jesus is the narrow way. Intentionally rearranging our lives to follow Christ is not easy or convenient. Birth pangs are a really poetic way of describing an intense anguish. And pain that a woman experiences before those first soft cries are heard. Before that fresh new skin touches hers. But in most cases, that is what the birth pangs give way to. To life and to goodness and to beauty. In fact, our epistle reading this morning reminds us that this way has been opened to us, not by our own efforts or righteousness, but by Christ. Our rule of life, like our reading from Hebrews this morning, opens with an affirmation of Jesus's kingship, of Jesus seated on the right hand of God. And in this, we are meant to see the striking availability of God's kingdom here and now. And this availability to the kingdom is not this get out of hell free card as oftentimes it's sold to us. It is an invitation and it is a welcome into the very life of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The community to which Brendan spoke of this morning, a community that exists because God is love. And at its very core, our yes to Jesus is a yes to a personal and intimate union and communion with God, but it is one that has tangible expressions in our lives and in community. It has tangible expressions for the sake of our neighbor. It is a new and living way that we walk in together. It's a way that has been opened to us through the very body of Christ. That breathing, bruised, wounded, and resurrected body is the invitation into the very heart of God. But our affirmation of the availability of God's kingdom All the beauty and truth of what we just spoke of is not intended to remain simple affirmations in our minds. They're intended to be affirmed by our lives. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew, and I love Eugene Peterson's translation of this. Uh, It says, in a word, what I'm saying is, my friends, it may be time to grow up. You are kingdom subjects. So live like it, live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others the way God lives toward you. What Jesus is getting at in those words is an idea he he intends to animate our hearts and capture our imaginations, that you and I, as the friends of God, as the brothers and sisters of Christ, That you and I, having said yes to the availability of God's kingdom, are the first fruit of God's new creation of his new life. Because part of the reason why Jesus was so okay with that beautiful building being torn down was because he knew that surrounding him were the true temples where God would dwell. His friends then and his friends now. That's why in his high priestly prayer in the gospel of, of John that will actually happen shortly after this scene, he prays for all of his friends throughout all time, because he knows you and I having said yes to the availability of God's kingdom, that it begins to make its way into the groundwater of our lives and our lives become signposts of new creation. And that is both true individually and together. Which is why at the end of our epistle reading uh, this morning, the preacher of Hebrews calls the church then and now to what? To hold fast. Imagine an old salty sailor holding on to the ropes in the midst of the storm. Hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. To stir up one another. I think some of the older translations to provoke one another to what, to love, to good deeds, to not neglect, to meet together as is the habit of some, but to encourage one another all the more, as you see the day of our King's return approaching all of these are tangible expressions of our union and communion with God that are lived out beautifully, that are lived out messily, and simply and slowly together. All of these are ways in which we say yes to God, throw open the gates of our gardens, and make space for God to do what only God can do. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you.